We're going to proceed tonight to the church in Philadelphia. This is found in Revelation chapter three. So if you want to go ahead and go there, that's where we will be. As we were looking at these initially several weeks ago, just doing a synopsis of these churches, the comment that was made about the church in Philadelphia is that it was a very faithful church. It was faithful in keeping the truth. It was holy. And it, like the church in Smyrna, is one that received no criticism. There's not a rebuke. There's not reproof in this letter at all. So it really made it a whole lot less fun to teach. I, I kind of liked the ones where they were in trouble. You know, you can really get your teeth into those. So here they didn't do anything wrong, so I'm not sure what I need to tell you. But we'll give it a shot anyway. As you well know, the, the, the word Philadelphia is a combination of two Greek words, philo, which means to love, and adolphus, which means brother. So as we know Philadelphia to mean, it, it's the city of brotherly love. Truly what those two words mean. So if you'd go with me to Revelation chapter three, we'll begin with verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man takes thy crown. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So, Complete words of accommodation, of commendation, recognizing what they have been able to do. One of the unique realities is that this city was built to be a place of Greek language, culture, of the Greek way of life, of the civilization, so that it would kind of become a mission front for the rest of the world out around them. There was a great hope in the building of Philadelphia, it was named after the guy that actually built the city, that it would be this launching place from where the Greek culture could just spread quickly. So you recognize in it, there was a design already that would allow this free flow of Greek culture and Greek civilization to affect the surrounding world. So when you recognize that and you realize what began to happen with the rise of Christianity within Philadelphia, that same network that had been built to spread the Greek culture allowed Christianity to spread very quickly. The same network was used, the same connections were used. So Christianity in the area, you know, moved very quickly. So Philadelphia was kind of known as a mission outpost. It was a very prosperous city and could boast of the greatest highway in the world, which led from Europe to the east. 
So it's interesting to me. And it's just something that kind of swirls in my head when you kind of line these facts up. That here's the city of brotherly love designed to be this city that would allow for the proliferation of information. And it was known for the highway that would lead from there to the east. If I wanted to really stretch this and spiritualize this further, it would be a very short step because when a church, when a group of people actually can begin to function in love, there's no better place for the launching of ministry than from a place of love. It's going to almost be impossible to launch it if you're not starting in a place of love. If that's not happening, then what will begin to happen in that place is that there will be judgment, criticism, harshness, ridicule, guilt, frustration with each other. All of those things will exist and it will be very difficult to direct any energy outward, much less have a highway that always catches my attention because it was prophesied over sundown in this church that God would build a highway of holiness to this city. And it'd be a means by which we would not only be able to receive, but which we could also send. So there was a highway of holiness connected to this church and to this community that was prophesied over it. And I do believe that God will continue to bring people to us for one reason or the other through that highway of holiness. But if it were not known here for the love that we have for each other, there will be no launching of anything. You can't do it. Life will be consumed with all the frustrations and consumed with all the differences and all the energy that that takes to consider that. And there's not a whole lot of ministry that will ever occur. So there's a good description of this city, the city of Philadelphia, known for its ability to receive things, but also to send them out quickly. And to me, it begins to paint a picture as to why about this city, there was no rebuke. Why everything that Jesus had to say after examining this church was something positive. So let's begin with verse seven. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy and he that is true. He that has the key of David. So he's talking very, very specifically about himself. The he who is true. There's a couple of words that describe that. One of the the Greek words for the word true means true and not false, like you would be taking in a test. But the word that's used here is the word that means true and not fake. So he's telling them, the one who's talking to you is the very real, the very genuine, the very specific God of heaven. No deceit, nothing fake. You're dealing with the very, very real God of heaven. So he's telling them who he is. He's holy and he's true. All right. I go back to the teaching here. If I had to lay a foundational statement about ministry that springs from my heart because of that, certainly is a part of this ministry. It's heard me say it dozens and dozens and dozens of times is that the Bible was not intended to tell us what to do. Because if we ever get this truth, if this will ever settle, then we'll recognize that who we are in relationship to who he is answers every question. You will not be able to ask a question that doesn't resolve if you understand who you are in relationship to who he is. If we're uncertain about something going on, who do we know is true? 
This is why we you know, talk in these terms. If I was trying to make an assessment of Janice, look at her life, look at fact, look at history, look at everything, and I were to try to draw a conclusion about Janice, what would the likelihood be that I could get it right? Zero, absolutely zero. With her being willing to tell me, with her being willing to share, still my ability to understand her to, to, so that I could successfully describe her would be zero. Why? Jesus made it very clear. The Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. Do you see how that answer connects to this statement when he says about himself, the one that is talking to you is the one that is true. Who he is, he's not trying to tell us, these are the things I will do. He mentions a few of those. He's got to tell us in every situation who he is. A guy that I ministered to recently, he says, how is it possible for us to be so blind to who he says we are because he remade us and he renamed us, not for anything that we've done right, when his word is so full of him telling us over and over who we are in him. It is all about identity. How can so many of us live our whole lives not seeing something so obvious? Identity, especially for me, solves every problem every time. So I answered him back and his, his answer to me was, it is incredible, he is incredible. Jesus told us, be therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. I resented that, that impossibility. How could I ever be perfect? He knows I can't be. Oh, but I am in him. Seated at the right hand of God, the work is done, finished. Not someday, now. I am perfect because my father in whom I am identified is perfect and holy and righteous and completely complete. Simply mind blowing and awesome. That is a perspective that I can introduce somebody to, but they can only receive because of the encounter they have with God himself. You don't write stuff like that when you're talking about a theory. You don't say things like that when you're talking about a concept. You say things like that when it has actually occurred where the identity that I have in relationship to the identity that he has solves your problem, brings you the perspective. When somebody comes into my office, I generally can't change a single fact. There's not anything about the story. Sometimes I can, sometimes there's a situation where we can actually take action and do something. Most of the time when somebody comes in, I can't change a single fact. All I can do is reframe the story that they're telling, reframe the picture that they're painting in front of me. But it's amazing how when you reframe the picture that they're painting and you frame it in truth, if you frame it by letting God do the framing, it is amazing what happens when you see the picture. It looks so totally different when you see the picture. It, this was mentioned to me as, again as, as well this week, but became quite a fad a few years ago, and I haven't seen any in a while, but there were pictures that when you looked at them, they just looked like thousands of dots of different colors. But if you stared at it long enough and focused it in the, in the right way, then that would become a three-dimensional picture. That there was something behind that that you couldn't see, but if you looked at it just right, the three-dimensional picture would suddenly appear in front of you. How many of you have seen Patch Adams, the, the movie Patch Adams? It was a true person. He adds Patch Adams, he holds up four fingers. What do you see? Well, four fingers. And he says, no, look again. And he kind of gives the same answer. He says, no, look again. And he says something like six or eight or something like that. And he says, yeah, that's a great answer. Because we look at things on the surface 
not realizing that if we look a little bit longer, we'll see something behind the story that we didn't see. Who will that always be? If we look at the situation long enough, who will always appear in the background? God will. We have to train ourselves to look for God in the picture. We have to be ready in all things because our judgments are always processing the surface. That's what somebody brings in. They bring in the situation that's on the surface, the topical things that are going on. And when we look at it long enough, when we approach it with the eyes of God, what he will show us is the depth of the picture, the depth of the story, and we'll see him and his hands in things that we otherwise couldn't see. When we look at a church as being recognized like Philadelphia, it's not necessarily because of the great things that he's going to talk about later. It's because when he says, I am the God who is true and I'm the God who is holy, guess what? They believed him. How amazing it would be for churches all over the world if we would simply believe that God is who he says he is. We don't look for him in the picture. We don't look for him in the story. We keep looking at the surface stuff being sucked down by those things, not recognizing what would it mean if we could actually see God in this story? What could actually be occurring if we'd simply look for God in the picture? Philadelphia wasn't great because of the things Jesus is about to say about them. They're great because they believed him when he said, this is who I am. They didn't fight back when he says, I am the one who's true and I'm the one who is holy. And he says he is the one who holds the key of David. This is a quotation from Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 23, talking about a servant that will be given these keys. It expresses power and authority. There's many times within the New Testament when God says, if you know this, you'll, you will have the keys to the kingdom. What does this key represent? If you have the key, what do you get to do? Every morning we go to the gym at 530 to walk. I get out of the car. Jan's got the key. What does she do with the key? She opens the door. What is Jesus saying? He who has the key of David. He's saying, I'm the one who opens. I'm the one who creates the opportunities. I'm the one who gives the authority. You want to pass? I'm the one who issues the pass. You need a visa? I'm the one who gives the visa. I'm the one who actually creates the opening for ministry. I'm the one who creates the opportunity for blessing. I'm the one who opens that door. Again, conceptually, if we would get it, it would stop most of the Christian activity that's going on around the world today. Because where does most of the Christian activity originate? In our minds. We see a need, we think we gather the resources, we go and meet it. Most ministry today, large scale and small scale, is born because somebody had an idea. What's he saying here? If we can adjust this just a little bit, what is he saying here? There will not be a door open anywhere you want to go. You can go to Africa or you can, you can go to the reservation. If I don't open the door, you can go try to do a good thing, a kind thing. But the supernatural evidence and the supernatural reality will not be unless I'm the one who opens the door. Again, why would he do that? Why is that so necessary? Why is it not okay to just try to go do something good? Who's smart enough to figure that out? Who's smart enough to figure out if my going and my opening my mouth is going to be a good thing or not? He's the only one. So when we try to do it, even in the name of goodness or kindness, without him opening the door, then we have a real good opportunity of messing it up. And I don't know how many of us could have testimonies about watching that occur. My suspicion is everyone. The love's not there, the door will never open. 
And that's very clear what he's trying to tell them. I'm the one who holds the key. And he said, and by the way, if I open the door, no man can shut it. He said, there's not a single condition that could ever occur that would allow a man to close the door that I've opened. I love that fact. You know what it says to me as a pastor? I can't mess this up. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and we're being obedient to let God build what he wants to build, I can't mess this up. I'm not the one who's holding the door open. I'm not the one who shuts the door because he says the other side. And when I shut it, no man can open it. When that situation happens and he says, I shut the door, no man can open what I shut. Again, it's a very simple reality that he's trying to express about himself, not in a negative way, but to tell them if it's going right, if there's opportunity, especially for a city that was built to be a missionary city, I'm the one who's creating the openness around you. I'm the one who creates the opportunity. The reason that this is so necessary is because I only know one God who is sovereign. I only know one God who has the capability of looking across this world and recognizing something that's being born in sundown actually can meet a need halfway around the world. I don't know anybody that's smart enough that has the perspective of that outside of God. He's the one who opens these doors and we need to learn very specifically, especially as churches, not to move until he opens the door because we can force that thing open or we can try and wonder why things are not going well because it was our decision and not his openness. Verse eight, he says, I know thy works. He says, said this to every church. I know thy works. And he said it to all seven churches. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. So Jesus acknowledges here that he's seen this church serve God in very, very difficult circumstances. He's saying, I have seen, when he talks about a little strength, the open door is his opportunity for this city to live within their destiny. I have no greater desire in my life, personally, or for this church, that we live the full destiny that God has planned for us. I think that ought to be the heart of any believer and the heart of, especially of every pastor. I don't have a destiny for this church that I've dreamed up. God holds that destiny in his hands. If we're obedient, if we recognize who holds it, then we will do what we're designed to do, which is let him build here what he wants to build. He will do it perfectly. He won't mess this up if we will simply let him build what he wants to build. It is his destiny, but I have a real desire in me to live out the fullness of that. Both for my part individually, I don't wanna miss anything. I don't want to miss an opportunity. I don't want to miss a moment. I do. I know I do. But my heart before God is that the destiny that you have for me, which is part of a destiny that he has for us, is I want this church to fulfill everything that it was committed to fulfill. Big ways and small ways. This isn't playing church. This isn't holding a couple of hours on Sunday morning, an hour on Sunday night, an hour on Wednesday night. This is not a place that just fills a few hours a week. This either becomes our life or it becomes something that we can dismiss. If the destiny that we are designed to fulfill before God and the destiny of how that connects together to create the church here in this church, but really the larger church, if we don't have a desire to fulfill that destiny, we will become the stumbling block to the fulfillment of it. This isn't something else we do. This is what we do. This is why we go to work. This is why we minister in our families. It's why I love my wife. It's because 
every one of those things fits within a plan that God has for us. Every piece of this fits within a story that he's already written. So I either agree with it and live according to it and am blessed by it, or I become the stumbling block that causes it not to occur. That's conceptually pretty challenging to recognize that I should have a powerful interest and an equally high desire to live out the fulfillment of my destiny that is combined with yours. He's talking in big terms. He's expressing himself in big ways because again, for most people, church and their Christian life becomes the something else that they do. Can't work that way. Whether you're at home in the, in the afternoon, getting up ready to go to work in the morning, preparing for your day for whatever that looks like and however you live it, there should be a recognition that I set this day before God so that I can live the fullness of all that he intended. What's the first thing that has to go if that's going to occur? Self has to die. Every day it has to die. It died once to find that salvation that he brought us. It dies every day so that we can live the salvation that he gives us. It's an everyday thing. You want to know why church is leveled off into a state of mediocrity? It's that right there. That we're not willing to set self aside so that we can have this greater desire found deep within us to live the destiny that he has for us. And I want to tell you, I haven't arrived but I have more fun right now on a day-to-day basis than I've ever had in my life. It's not because there's absence of worry or absence of difficulty. It's that I wake up with an anticipation of God and I make so many mistakes. Please don't misunderstand. If if you saw my life and the lack of holiness that's there, then you would recognize and say, how can he say that? It's because that's the heart. When I finally just said, God, I, I can't do religion anymore. I can't do church anymore. Just can't do it. And he met me in that moment and said, I've been waiting because he says, from this point forward, if you'll let me, I'll build your life and ministry according to what I have and not what you have planned. So he says, I know your works and I have set before you an open door. I believe God could prophetically and would prophetically say that about this church. I'm not going to express this in terms of worry. It's not the right thought, but I don't know exactly how to express it. For many, many years, long before I came, even back you know, when I was younger, this church has had a very powerful heart to give. Whatever the need was, this church gives. Biggest concern that happens within ministry is that the outward circumstances, the economy, the things that make us nervous begin to affect that heart. When is the best time to give? When's the best time to throw a worship party? In the middle of the moment when you don't want to. In the middle of the moment when brokenness is around you, there's no better time to break out in praise than in those moments. It's easy when things are going good. The great time to do it is when things are not. Again, when we begin to understand, when it really begins to dawn on us, then these things will settle powerfully over our hearts. He says, you have a little strength. He's not telling them that you're rising up full of power in this dynamic church. He says, you just have a little strength. What is that little strength producing? What is that little subtlety about what he's saying? What is it producing? You have a little strength, which has caused you to do what? You kept my word and you have not denied my name. Be very easy in those moments when there wasn't much strength to wonder what God was doing. 
to even speak that question out loud and maybe even deny the possibility that God will help us in this difficult moment. I love the fact he draws this. We kind of talk about the fact that we need to have this significant strength. So many churches in the name of love have kind of dismissed everything and made everything okay and didn't want to tell the truth because they didn't want to offend anybody. So there's this tension between telling the truth and recognizing that I could be hurting people's feelings or just love them and just kind of tear down all those barriers and just love them. And all of us have encountered it. It's difficult at times to tell the truth and love. Even calling sin, sin, or you know whatever happens to be, it's like it offends half the population. So we kind of drop all those things and it becomes a message of love. I never find a moment when I think that Jesus is having a difficult time saying what he's supposed to say or loving how he's supposed to love. I never see in the gospels that tension anywhere. So what does it tell us about us? It tells us that we are trying to use truth according to my perception and not the truth of God. It's my perception of these topics, of these issues that I'm trying to defend and try to do that without offending somebody. That if Jesus didn't live in that tension between truth and love, and that Jesus now by the Holy Spirit lives in me, I shouldn't have to find courage. I have to trust him. It's not courage I need. It's his presence. Because when he's dealing with the woman who was caught in adultery, he doesn't review for a second anything about her story. He doesn't point out any truth except that no one condemns you, go and sin no more. He doesn't review her sin. He doesn't say you're messing up, you're destroying your life, you're hurting your family, look at your reputation. He doesn't go down that road at all. What does he do, however, for the woman at the well? What does he do when she comes? Told her exactly that you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with, by the way, is not your husband. Why would he say something like that one time and not say it the next time. Because it had nothing to do with his determination of the priorities. He's, when he says, I can only say what I hear my father say, and I can only do what I see my father show me to do, then he recognizes that the only one who can tell whether it's love or truth or how this needs to actually be balanced is not based on me, it's based on the person that I'm speaking to. And I don't know what that is, but he does, so I have to trust him. It's not courage I need, it's obedience. I need to be in his presence. He said, you don't need much strength. I'm not asking you to be strong, but the strength that you have, I want you to hold on to. I don't want you to be this people who waver. That's what he says in the next verse. Little strength, again, that's a great statement. That's not a statement of ridicule because, man, what does it immediately tell you? If you acknowledge that you have little strength and you need big strength, what does it immediately tell you? I have little and I need big. What am I going to have to do? Trust him. My weakness, guess what? is made perfect in his strength. He tells us that, by the way. So they were faithful to what he committed. Before I go to the next verse, I want you to think about this. This is one of those relevant truths that hit me when I was looking at verse eight because of this tension between small strength and great results. I wrote this down. You cannot claim great faithfulness. You can't hold yourself up as a man or woman of great faith. Even in silent terms, internal terms, talking to yourself. Now I realize I'm talking to a group of people as believers today who typically are constantly running themselves down. Most of us don't consider ourselves stuff in great terms at all. We have a tendency to, to dismiss ourselves into, almost into insignificance. But here's a reality. 
that you cannot claim great faith. You can't even see yourself as this great believer to the word of God, to the word of Jesus, if you refuse and deny the reality of, of living according to his character that comes only from him. What am I saying? We can make great claims of being a Christian and we can sort ourselves in that fact and rank ourselves. And, and you know, you'd like to say we don't do it. We all do it. We see ourselves as pretty good. We see ourselves as mediocre. We see ourselves as poor. But there's a truth in, in all of this. You cannot even rank yourself if you're not willing to take on the character of God and that in everything you do, let him be expressed through you. That's a hard statement. It's him doing it. That's exactly right. So any claim that we make from top to bottom is an incorrect statement because the truth is he has to do it. He's the one who's living in us. He's the one who's producing what we cannot produce. So any claim that I have of any type says it's, it's untrue. If I'm not willing to let his very nature, the character of God come my character and my nature. And I can justify or defend any craziness that I might have, that I might be stubborn or I'm just can dismiss myself or I can build myself up or I can excuse myself in a thousand different ways to explain what's going on in me. The reality is that until I'm willing, we die so that he can live. If I'm not willing to do that, I cannot claim great faith. I can't claim small faith. Faith says it requires me to die so that he can live. Again, every one of y'all sitting out there demonstrating faith in the chair that you're sitting in. The minute that you sat down and, the, and your weight hit that seat, that seat went to work on your behalf. And it's doing something that you cannot do. Remove the pews, what's going to happen? Everybody falls. You're trusting it to do something for you that you can't do yourself. That is the nature of faith. Faith says, I recognize I can't so that he can. If I'm not along with that fact, willing to, to take on his nature and his character so that he's producing in big ways and small ways, his nature to the people around me, I can't claim great faith. Now moving on, verse nine. Verses nine and 10, behold, I will make them of a synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not. So again, he's just, he's simply saying, there's a group of people that are attacking you that are supposed to be the religious leaders of the day. They're making claims to be a church of the Jews and they're not. Now I want to tell you, they're probably going through all the motions. They're probably meeting in the building. They're meeting in the synagogue. They're claiming to be Jews and they're persecuting you because you're Christians. So they're coming against you. This is one that we frustratingly know way too well. The greatest condemnation that I get, and it's, there's not a lot, I'm not taking this up to a very high level. I don't ever get criticized by the people who are lost. I get criticized by the people who are saved. I don't ever deal with people who are lost. I deal with contentious people within the Christian world who cause the biggest difficulties. That's what was going on here. But Jesus got it real straight. He said, I don't care what religion you are. I don't care how dynamic you are in it. If you do not understand me as the son of God and are willing to accept me as the son of God, then he was pretty straightforward when he says it is a synagogue of Satan. How can that be possible? These are people who were probably meeting in God's name, meeting for God's purposes, meeting to do what was right. But because they disagreed with the truth of God and what he had done through, through Jesus Christ, they wouldn't believe that. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. That's hard. It would be like calling a sister church, a church of Satan, 
And you look across there and you see, these are my neighbors. These are people that I live around. Why would we ever dare say something like that? Well, it's because we create three categories of things. We create those things that are of God, those things that are of Satan, and then this huge benign middle where most things exist, which neither hurt nor help. And we think we live most of our lives right there. But the scripture is very, very clear. That which is not of faith is sin. Two categories, not three categories. No middle ground. If it's not of faith, if it's not because of our trust in him, he, he creates one category for everything that's outside of faith. It's sin. That's how he does it. That's how he breaks this down to something so simple when he calls it the synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but they're not. They lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet. That'd be an interesting day, wouldn't it? And to know that I have loved you. But that has to rest on me. Anytime you take on an opinion to try to cause that to happen so that they will acknowledge you or trust you or believe you, if you take up your own mantle and try to make them believe what you're trying to teach, it will be totally unsuccessful. Remember what he said? I'm the one who opens. I'm the one who locks. I'm the one who creates the opportunity. I'm the one who is true. I'm the one who is holy. You do not have to defend me. You don't have to take up arms on my behalf. I'm quite capable of making your enemies come and bow at your feet. Don't try it on your own. This is one of those messages, you know, like on TV. Please don't try this at home. God's saying, please don't try this at home. Don't try to make those people come bow at your feet. I'll take care of that myself. I love that picture. So they're persecuted by Christians and the promises of vindication are all his. We're required to come and worship. The scripture also says in verse 10 that he will keep them from the hour of temptation. If you look at that word up in Greek, it's not temptation, it's tribulation. And when he references this, which shall come upon all the world, what would we immediately connect that to? He says tribulation, and then he says coming over all the world. Scripturally, what do we think he's talking about? Yeah, the great tribulation. Right before the millennial reign, the great tribulation, where this tribulation is experienced across the world. Well, it's interesting how this reads. Let me read it again. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation or the hour of tribulation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So I teach that this is speaking of the great tribulation. And because of their faithfulness, he will keep them from it. Oh, it's interesting that both sides of this question about pre-trib and post-trib use this scripture to explain their point. It's so interesting. Because to those who believe that we will be here during the tribulation, they say that the word keep seems to reference a command to preserve them through it. They're going to be here, but to keep them means I will keep you safe in it. You're going to be here, but I'll keep you. And then those who believe that Jesus will come for his church beforehand, focus on the fact that the scripture says we will be promised that we will be safe from that great moment of tribulation that I will keep thee from the very hour of temptation, that you won't even be here. So it's interesting that the same wording is used by both sides to justify their point. I happen to believe the way that it's written says when he says, I'll keep you from it, that that means that we won't be here. So I give lots of ground for anybody who, who disagrees. Verse 11, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast that no man take away thy crown. Again, this isn't a crown of royalty. This is the Stephanus crown that is a crown of victory. Hold on to it because there will be a day when you will lay that crown at Jesus' feet. Again, connect the dots. 
Why would we lay it at his feet if it's my crown, my victory? Why would I lay it at his feet? Because he's the one that did it. He's the source of the victory. Why would I hold on to it when the one who caused the victory is standing in front of me? And we're going to have that opportunity because of how we ran the race. Paul tells us this very well. Because of how we run the race, we will be given that laurel wreath that was a crown of victory, not a crown of royalty, that we will lay at his feet. And he says, count that to be precious. Hang on to that. That's very valuable. Hold fast. That's his encouragement to them to stand with determination on that solid foundation that he has described so well. Verse 12 is the promise of reward. Let me read that again. To him that overcomes, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Again, that's interesting because of what this church has been promised, that we will be a pillar in God's great move. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which came down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. I'm not going to go through all that, but do you read that and understand why I speak of identity? What is he saying here repeatedly? What's the word he repeats here? A new name. It's identity. He doesn't say, I'm going to give them a new responsibility. I'm going to tell them what to do. I'm going to assign them according to an identity that I see. It said, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. And then he ends where he always ends. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. There was a reason that they had no rebuke. There was a reason that they had no proof. They weren't standing and say we're a great church. As a matter of fact, the acknowledgement is that we don't have much strength. Sets in motion the reality that says, I'm forced then to trust the one who does. Very simple things said to this church in Philadelphia, even through its name. I have a lady that came to see me this morning, very brokenhearted because of a need within her life that she just could not meet. Had been up all night because uh, just could not make it work. And so she had thought of a, several different ways to try to make this work, and none of them were acceptable. None of them were workable. And I told her, I said, do you not understand that you're part of a family? Do you not understand that you have people who love you? And that this need that you're describing is one that can be very readily be met. I had a guy ask me a few weeks ago about a situation in his life, and I said, you're looking into the face of somebody who would have given you the money. You're sitting here worried, and you're looking into the face of somebody that would have gladly helped you. If you would have asked, then you would have gotten the help that you needed. Whether that's a prayer that you need, whatever help looks like. We're terrible, honestly, at asking each other for help. And I'm kind of at the top of the list. But until we get over that, we'll never become the family, the, the people of brotherly love that we're supposed to be. We need to ask, and we need to let others help us. And it was interesting to watch the burden lift when she recognized that help and hope was possible simply because she recognized that she was part of a family, that she had help when she didn't know that she had it. Who's blessed by that? All of us, every one of us, that will end up being a part of her answer Every one of us will be blessed because it's what God does when he establishes a family that's based on love. It's just exciting to get to watch it and to watch it unfold. Lord, thank you for this teaching and thank you for this church.
that we get to read about and understand and recognize that you're not describing them in terms of greatness. You're describing you in terms of greatness. Let us see the difference. Let us understand who's really true and who's really holy. And in our recognition of that, that we're not and that you are, I pray, Lord, that you would find within us this very receptive heart, this very receptive mind and a very open spirit to recognize in that what you do that we have no chance of doing. Let that just settle over us and let it become the truth that we live each day, the blessing that we receive. Thank you, Lord, for those who've gathered tonight and can spend this time together or so willing each week to come and study together. I thank you for them. I love them in Jesus' name. Amen.